0: We kind of have a tech guy now.
1: Technically not our tech guy, really more of Arthur Bray's tech guy who we're borrowing.
0: We're recording today back at Below Ground.
1: FM Below Ground. Yes. Courtesy of the Yeti Out crew. We have a Wednesday evening slot, which again, as I've said before, means nothing to our listeners because this doesn't go out on Wednesday. You don't listen to this concurrently. Hey, Who I know does? you said you didn't want an iced coffee, but I got you one anyway.
0: This is a nice coffee. Why is it in a
1: You know. I have the same question. This is stupid, I don't understand.
0: I'm I'm holding a I
1: don't understand. I
0: am i am holding ai do not understand hot beverage cup. With it,
1: with a hot beverage lid, but it's at an least iced coffee.
0: It's not plastic anyways. I don't know what I'm
1: thinking. Cheers, I guess. How are you? This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest. Through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
0: Making it up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in.
1: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us.
0: If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us via patreon.com making. Let's go. Sharice um, and I were both working at 4 a.m. last night.
1: That was kind of nice. Eugene messaged me at 4 and said, hey, are you up? And I said, yeah. I knew yeah. she was
0: up. I knew it.
1: Yeah. He anticipated that I would be awake. And I was. And I said, did you want a late night chat or something? I was
0: like, no, nah, I just want to say what's up. And I did.
1: Just working at the same time. That's nice. What are you wearing?
0: Whoa. That's a weird question.
1: I don't think I've ever seen you wear that. That was a very I dismissive... Think I don't think... Okay, let me try that again. What are you wearing, Eugene?
0: There, that's a little <laughs> bit better. It's a it's a Bibora long shirt. Some would say it's kind of it's tunic-esque. Nice.
1: It is tunic-esque. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen you wear it.
0: I actually left the, the house with the wrong jacket today. Didn't know it was raining.
1: What do you mean by the wrong jacket? did
0: leave with the rain jacket.
1: Wasn't optimized for the weather. Unlike you.
0: Uh, should we get into it?
1: We should start with yours on the subject of what are you wearing.
0: All right. Charisse didn't prepare notes today. Yo, that's a bit of a rarity.
1: First time, I think, in 150-some episodes that I didn't prepare notes. But you I did. not care I, didn't, I did prepare my subject. I just didn't type anything.
0: All I, right. I don't know what to tell Charisse's you. Charisse's topic is about... I don't know what to tell
1: you. I would say that Charisse's I... Charisse's topic
0: is about Twitter and mine is about fashion resale.
1: I think that's why I didn't take notes because, you know, I'm on Twitter all the time anyway. Yeah. All right. Tell me about fashion resale.
0: So my topic this week is luxury's involvement in resale could be the beginning of the end. And this story <laughs> is so
1: dramatic of a title, but I know, I know what they mean.
0: Yeah. And this piece appeared in High which I have to commend them. They've done a lot of interesting sort of thought pieces that speak more to just oh, what what just dropped, right? It's actually the state of fashion where it's going, cultural commentary, et cetera. And this piece was by Carl Thomas Smith. It talks about the growing investment from big corporations into resale platforms. Yep. So in this particular case, it was Group Artemis, the controlling shareholder for the Caring Group who invested in GOAT, which is a sneaker reseller platform. Uh, and this was a quote from the piece that I think provides a bit of context. It's like, Part of the unique appeal of the resale market is its democracy. I I have a bit of a bone to pick with that word. I don't think it's the right word to use. But uh, continuing on, when it comes to resale, the word marketplace, unlike so many other ways in which that term is often deployed to give the impression or create the illusion of flexibility, actually applies. Sellers set their prices loosely based on what they paid originally, but there are adjustments for scarcity, condition, and for the whims, wants, and needs of each individual. Buyers enjoy relative freedom to and are free to haggle, to choose who they buy from, or walk away from the deal at any point. To offer a caveat, this lax approach to regulation isn't always good. We've all seen the Depop drama Instagram account. I don't know if I'd call a marketplace democratic. I guess I would call it... I guess democratic is not how I would describe it. Yes, you have the ability to participate. I understand
1: your bone with the word democratic. I'm not going to be able to supply a better word. But I do agree that the key difference between a resale marketplace versus a retail shop... Is that the prices are not set in stone? Yes, and that the no buyer and the seller price. get to decide on their own. Like every individual buyer and seller can make their own decision. It really doesn't matter, actually, if the sneaker originally retailed for eight hundred dollars, you could sell it for one dollar. Yep, at your discretion, right? Like that's your your call. Like in some in, in some theory, ways,
0: marketplaces are nice to have when you're getting something for a deal. Right? Yep. But when it's on the flip side and it's above retail, that's when you start to have people come out of the woodwork like, oh, that's unfair, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Which I, mean, I agree. Both things are good, right? Which I agree, yeah.
1: The fact, the fact that you have the ability to negotiate price is the difference yeah. versus you walking into some retail store and yeah. you just have to pay the thing.
0: I think that there's something interesting there because those two distinctions are quite important. I think used resale versus new resale. Like, they all are kind of in the same bucket, but I I think you actually need to differentiate them because they have differing effects on how they influence consumerism and culture.
1: Well, I mean, this article goes on to talk about what new resale means, which I think is just, I don't know, it's complicated. It makes it look like retail in different clothing.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I actually have a point of view on that, which I think... Is utilizing platforms in a different capacity, not because of the fact they're a marketplace. But I'll get to that in a second. Okay. There's another quote from the Popular Times and Jing Daily's editor-in-chief, Enrique Menendez. If you're not familiar with Jing Daily, I I, I really like the publication. It's a Asia slash China-centric publication that delves in the world of like luxury, consumerism, shopping, et cetera. So it's yeah. quite good. It's definitely on my on my daily reads. And what he says is What we really need to question is who the investors at the top are we should be spending time researching and considering exactly who else is cashing out on these investments the case with most luxury conglomerates including carrying and artemis is that their top shareholders are predominantly white men there's a huge disconnect here when brands find the relevance speaking to streetwear black culture and other diverse cultures but the people making bank have nothing to do with these communities what he's saying is that once again it's who is profiting off these opportunities Yeah, I
1: mean, it's interesting as well because it's like another part of the fashion industry landscape to be aware of and to keep tabs on because, you know, it's a little bit easier to keep tabs on big fashion houses, creative directors. You know, people get promoted or they get poached, etc. to those positions. But now to think about these resale marketplaces and who's leading is this other layer
0: I think there's a lot of different things to unpack here because you have cultural differences. You have, and what I mean by cultural differences, I mean in relation to how culture's affected by this change, right? There's that. And I think there's also something to be discussed around just the reality of how business will change when this becomes more of a way to release product and or to sell product.
1: Do you want to talk more about that?
0: Which one do you want me to go with first?
1: the release product angle? Because I thought that was interesting in this article. And I don't, and for you, maybe it's something you're familiar with, but I think for Uh other people, maybe they haven't really thought about those implications as much about like luxury goods releasing products on resale marketplaces or using resale marketplaces as a channel of distribution. So
0: this is my point. I actually don't think that the marketplace itself is actually at its core why these brands want to get involved. Okay. I actually think the reason why you want to get involved here is because of attention. Like, I think that the fact that you now have this, basically, as much as you, it's not a traditional media platform, but it is a media platform Yeah. in terms of it attracts our attention. We go in there to look at things, see what's new, see if there's things that we're interested in. And it's a different type of content consumption. Like, it's not about me going to Instagram and me looking at, you know, a, a story or a, a picture of a pair of shoes and like, this is a story. It's like, just what's available. Right. And I think that that has become an interesting way because at the end of the day, I think that there's something to be said about what happens when you consolidate a bunch of different brands into one space that actually has attention versus me going to an individual retailer's singular place.
1: So you think that it is two luxury brands benefit to be visible on resale marketplaces? Because I feel like that is slightly counterintuitive To me, because it means that people are not choosing to hold on to your product, but instead are reselling it. And maybe they're buying it, not even to own it, but just for profiting off of the product. Correct. But that's you're saying that's still good for the brand.
0: I I think at some point, as much as we want to say, oh, we're about the culture, I think there's so much more additive value to having your product resold. Because I think that ultimately... This is the one thing we've talked about, especially was it last year or the week before, like the common denominator of money makes it very easy for people to have a point of reference.
1: But what if something's resold for less than retail? Still okay?
0: That's when I think another benefit comes in and that's the price discovery. Like what is the real price of something? Mm. Like that's something that's really interesting is because when we put something out into the marketplace, I think that's when you start and you start aligning buyers and sellers. Then you start to actually establish what is a more accurate price, mm, because interesting, because that, that's the thing is like we all think a pair of Air Force—I I don't know how much a pair of Air Force ones are. I think it's ninety bucks. Well, whatever they were, right? I'm sure inflation. Less. Let's say ninety bucks, right? Like theoretically, okay. I struggle with because on the one hand, I like the efficiencies of markets where, you know, what in New York, people are willing to pay one hundred and fifteen dollars, but in I don't know, rural Alberta, Canada, they'll, they'll pay 65
1: for air force ones. Let's
0: just use that as an example. Okay. right? Like that's a way of looking like efficiencies. And as a brand, like obviously it, there's a lot of inefficiency when your product has theoretically the ability for you to be sold at like, let's say $250 when it's a hundred dollar shoe. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, it's like, yeah, I think that there's so many like huge factors that influence retail as we know it and part of them as well as like these marketplaces, I think have basically just changed the whole dynamic where you are really okay with going there and buying stuff. And you know, it's under slightly different conditions. And especially now coming out of, I think technically we're still in the COVID pandemic sort of world, right? Like,
1: I think many people listening to this will say, we are still in the pandemic. And what not I'm, what I'm saying coming is that like, of-
0: how are all these retailers going to get rid of excess stock And, like, getting rid of excess stock somehow through a free-for-all type resale platform, I think, has a different branding perspective than when you get rid of it on, like, an official retailer's sales section.
1: Yeah, I understand.
0: Yeah. So, you can understand why there's so many different things at play from a branding perspective, from a financial perspective. But I think, ultimately, if these resale platforms did not have the attention, then you would not be able to create these opportunities.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time. Resale platforms didn't just get created in the last year. They've been around a minute. And even before they were formalized in places like Goat, people were reselling casually through forums, through just messaging each other. Yeah. Right, so the activity itself is really old. Yeah. I do have a question, which is, how does this affect the individual reseller? How does this affect someone who's really... uh, Kind of two-sided questions. Like there are resellers who are in this for profit, right? Who resell products because they think they can make some money off of doing it. And then there are resellers who also are genuinely super interested in fashion, both luxury and not luxury, and in collecting exclusive limited items. And then they clear out their wardrobe and, you know, they want to share it with other people. How does this affect those people?
0: I think the ones that are trying to make money off of it, like the ones that are selling above retail are probably going to be in a more difficult place. But I also think that there's a lot of things out of our control. You know, would be really good is like Dean from the discord community.
1: You want to talk more about that? Because I mean, yeah. you're gesturing to me, but there's a whole bunch of people who yeah. don't so know like, what there's, you're there's referring a, to.
0: There's a, a member on our discord server named Dean.
1: Shout out Patreon members. Yeah, shout
0: out Patreon <laughs> member who is part of soul savvy, which is a membership slack group about buying sneakers. Right. I'm sure he would have really good insights into like the different breakdowns of types of people because I'm I don't resell sneakers. But what I do think is like I'm more familiar with the other side of I want to clear out my wardrobe yeah. and i gonna put this out and there's a marketplace for it.
1: You know, there must be some way that this affects the subculture of buying and reselling sneakers and other fashion items. And... We talked about, you know, those cultural differences when it comes to brands at a fashion label level, you know, like the company level. But maybe there's also an implication for the way this shakes up the culture from the individual buyer reseller.
0: Well, this is an interesting thing because like as a consumer right now, do you think you have a lot of choice as a consumer? Yeah, I do. So even if this becomes... Even more mainstream. I don't know if your ability to make a decision as a consumer improves because you're just slapping on even more choice. Mm. You know, you know what's that saying? I forget the saying where it's like the it, is it a tyranny of choice or something? There's a saying where it's like basically I don't know, but point. I can
1: say it's not pronounced tyranny.
0: This is tyranny, whatever. I think it's a Canadian Sorry. thing. We had we had this exact discussion, but it okay, different Canadian. Okay, doesn't matter. Doesn't
1: yeah. matter. Um, that's a interesting of a question. I feel like I would just get more confused. Yeah, we already
0: have way too much choice. What you're saying is
1: like, now I don't even know how to evaluate a resale marketplace. What if I feel conflicted about, what is it? Artemis Group? Yeah. Group Artemis?
0: Like one thing I also wanted to add was that, I guess as a brand, you might have more intel on pricing your product and or understanding what sells and what doesn't sell. So let's say Sharice is wearing a denim shirt. As a brand... If that shirt doesn't sell at retail, right, then you realize, oh, you know what? Like, I don't know if this is a shirt worth putting out because I think that's mm. the biggest issue with fashion right now is like there's so much excess and it doesn't even get sold in the sales section.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then soon it's like, oh, you know what? Maybe it does end up on, on the whole sort of uh, resale platform market, right? And, it's, and it sells for $32. Then you can actually make that assessment as to whether I should actually produce this shirt. Interesting. That's what I'm thinking. Like I think product testing pretty much, but I think it's a super wasteful approach towards product testing.
1: Yeah, totally. We're talking about producing products without any certainty of consumer and then just consigning it to a secondary resale marketplace
0: first. Let me pose to you like a scenario. What happens if all new product was only ever released in this marketplace type environment where it was dynamic pricing?
1: Oh, okay, I was about to say, yeah. I just don't understand the difference between that and retail.
0: But no, no, okay. but that's what I'm saying. Like, it has to have dynamic like, who, pricing. Who
1: determines the dynamic pricing?
0: So you would just release it, it'd be dynamic pricing. It's like, hey, by
1: who though? By, by the person I mean? on the other
0: end that's willing to buy the product. Oh, okay. So right? it's like bidding. It's, it's there's basically no, seller no different, here. huh?
1: But there's no seller here. So it's, it's just by bidding. It's well, a buyer, the seller, buyer picks. The, sell- the seller is the brand. Correct. Okay. So it's just like buyer. I get, I can, it's like eBay.
0: It's kind of Isn't what? Is it like eBay? It's similar to that, yeah. Okay. Let's say hypothetically there's a way for you to establish price discovery because it's kind of what StockX is. So
1: what if we just all got together, I say we as if there was a collective entity, but I guess I'm thinking a little bit about our Wall Street bets. Let's say there's like an R resale marketplace group. Yeah, And we all get together and, you know, Nike is going to release Air Force Ones just on this resale marketplace. Mm-hmm. And we say, none of us are going to bid over 10 USD. And that way we keep the price below but 10 USD. in terms USD. of game
0: theory, like what is someone's incentive to, like, you know what I mean? like So I that could, we
1: all get the shoes for 10 USD. No, but there's going to be a
0: limited quantity, right? Like there's always going to be a limitation on the quantity, which is what I'm trying to say. Like this is what I was going to say. The flip side is that resale is either one or the other and just get rid of retail as we know it. it's like hey you know what all new products dynamic pricing obviously there's going to be like consequences i'm just i mean no this, this is i'm
1: i am only impressed because this is like one of the most radical things you've said get rid of retail Entirely, and just We're dynamic pricing. We are literally standing in a the basement of a shopping mall a as shopping Eugene mall. says this. Yeah, you're saying get rid of all of this.
0: No, I'm saying like you. I'm just pricing outside the, pricing, the window. Right? Okay. So let me finish. Okay. Sorry. So you have <laughs> dynamic pricing for new products, and then you also have just reselling stuff for used products. So everything is like dynamically priced as a whole. And you have no sort of like concrete pricing.
1: Don't you feel like this would take a lot more effort from the consumer?
0: But what I like about this, which I probably should have like thrown in a little earlier, is like I like the fact that from from a creation standpoint, it really reinforces just the best products to be created. Like ask someone who has a Nike account how much shit they have that they don't really want to take on because they know they can't sell it, but they need to take it on so they can get, you know, the Travis Scott's or whatever. So what I'm trying to say is, like, this could be, in in essence, a way to optimize the production and delivery of products. Um, but anyways, I think there's a lot of things that make it more challenging.
1: I find it hard to imagine. Totally.
0: You could do it on a small scale. I mean, I personally have thought about how this could work out because even on a small scale, let's say Macon releases T-shirts. This is one thing I really like dynamic okay. pricing. This is,
1: this is a good way to think about it because I'm definitely stuck in this like, you know, luxury mall idea where Valentino's like down the corridor. You still need
0: to come here and see the product in real life.
1: Okay, let's talk about Macon. Yeah. Macon T-shirts.
0: All right. You Macon release t-shirt. them
1: as dynamic pricing.
0: Let's say that the first 10 go for like, are there to establish. Baseline. Uh, yeah, baseline. Let's say I start at $30 and if, I I sell them out in 24 hours? Okay, then that's probably means that they can be more expensive, right? And let's say hypothetically. That? I mean, it's for there's there's ways you could do it. Like I mean, you could just basically No, but like
1: you as a seller determines that. You as yeah. Eugene makes Let's say you
0: write an like create an algorithm that does the But the this pricing. isn't
1: dynamic from the seller persp- from the buyer perspective.
0: There's one there's one singular input. I okay, mean, you sorry, could I also I keep I
1: keep cutting you off. Just finish. What is the execution of this? The first 10 you were at 10, 30. There's so
0: many ways to like Of breaking this up. But I think ultimately the way they did, they did a Dutch auction with uh, StockX where people would just put in their bid, right? And I think if I recall correctly.
1: I'll look this up for you. Yeah. In a StockX IPO, what they call an IPO.
0: Which is basically a Dutch auction. Products
1: are priced using a blind Dutch auction. This is the same mechanism used to price certain equities in a traditional stock market IPO. A blind Dutch auction starts quite simply. Everyone bids whatever amount they want to pay for the product. That's it all bids are blind, which means you cannot see what anyone else bids and no one else can see what you bid. The only information each participant has is the description of the product, how many units of that product are available and how many bids have already been placed. And then after the IPO ends, StockX sets the price. All winners are charged the same amount, what's called the clearing price. To determine the clearing price, we simply match the top bids with the quantity available for each item. So if there were 10 items available for a particular, for a particular size, the top 10 bidders would win. The clearing price is then defined as the lowest of those 10 winning bids.
0: Does that make sense? Yes. Well, I mean, for me, because I understand it.
1: Well, I'm wondering if that makes yeah. sense to someone else. Do I need to continue? There's more to this. I think
0: that's enough. I think okay. basically what, you're, what this does is establish a price. Right? Interesting. Yeah. So I think that's what I'm trying to get at is like, does that inherently optimize everything? Imagine everything went to this dynamic pricing model. I mean, what, off- is,
1: what is so interesting for me, which we have talked about on this podcast before, is putting it in the hands of individuals to determine the value of a product. You know, and I know that's interesting to you too.
0: Super interesting because there's so much shit out there.
1: We individually have to calculate based off of what we know about Factories, manufacturing. What is the value of creative work? What is the value of supporting a small brand like Macon versus a big brand? Yeah. All of that, and then you come up with a dollar amount, right? All of that adds up in your mind to what am I willing to pay for this product? Which is very interesting. Yeah, I logistically think that there's so many hurdles between making this a reality, but as you said, on small scale adoption, totally doable.
0: Hey man, if someone can put. Bitcoin on their balance sheet.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm rolling so anyways, my eyes very hard. Anyways,
0: this is what I'm trying to get at. I think that right now the whole reason why there's so much product is because there's not enough buyers, right? So how do you optimize that? Both through the amount of stuff you put out and the pricing, and you know, I think that for better or worse, like the the whole approach towards is something successful because it's resold and at what value? I think that's probably incorrect in terms of the way culture should operate we should not monetize it in that sort of direct sense but Mm -hmm. we do Mm -hmm. because i was reading something actually and i was like kind of confused because someone somebody conflated the success of a mischief which is like a, a digital marketing company that does like these interesting drops Right. Yeah. They did
1: they most recently have done Birkenstocks made out of real Birken bags.
0: Yeah. yeah. So for example, someone might look at that drop and be like, oh, it only resold for twenty four percent more than the original price. That's mm-hmm. a failure.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: I don't think that's the right way of looking at things.
1: Yes, but people are very literal.
0: Correct. But I, I think that if we always take things at super literal face value, then what are we left with? I, I understand that there's things that allow us to make decisions a lot faster. If we don't embrace nuance, which we clearly are not as a culture and society right now, it's like, dude, shit just goes sideways so quickly. It's just, it's sure. not interesting. It's not fun. It's not provocative. It's just like so literal. Sure. And I know that I just introduced that whole like dynamic pricing. But the reason why, because that was a solution to what I think is a massive problem within product releases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyways, that's all I have.
1: Yeah. A lot of things to think over.
0: I actually would love to hear people's perspective because- While Make It doesn't promote itself as being, like, overtly consumeristic, I think a lot of people in our community are pretty smart when it comes to, like, consumerism or they're very familiar with it.
1: Well, I think it's interesting because you use overtly consumeristic in a slightly negative way. But the reality is that we are all consumers, whether we consume a lot or a little. I mean, I have also bought articles of clothing within the last year, so still consuming things yeah. and i think Maken's really thoughtful about how we consume so hit us up eugene wants your thoughts dynamic pricing yeah. resale marketplaces
0: i mean don't get me wrong there's a lot of challenges that come with this but i think it's like it's worth trying I
1: mean, why talk about the easy stuff
0: all right should we move on
1: let's do it This week, my subject is Twitter. I didn't necessarily pick this topic because we put it to the making Yes, Patreon members. And actually, this episode was genuinely democratically chosen. Both subjects were the clear winners in the vote of which subjects were of interest. So thanks, guys. This subject comes from Scott Galloway. It comes from both his newsletter, No Mercy, No Malice, and also a article published in New York Magazine. Essentially, he says that Twitter could really use an overhaul. And he makes an argument that an overhaul would be both financially beneficial, so good for their bottom line as a business, and also good as a public utility. So good for everyone else in general for the discourse. The problem with Twitter, in case people are unaware, is that it has really let toxic content run its course on the platform, continuing to run its course, continuing to polarize people. And the reason that Twitter lets it exist is because it needs that content for engagement. So one example, one very good example that people will be aware of is Trump. Yep. Trump was only banned after the January 6th insurrection, so not banned for the entire duration of his four years as presidency. And people were very critical of Twitter for this. But it is quite obvious that Twitter benefited from Trump being on the platform because his use of Twitter brought 26,000 tweets and 1,000 tags per minute to the platform by him being on it. And this is from Galloway's newsletter. So I didn't in fact check this against anything else. And it, they also, his own presence helped reverse Twitter's stock price. And then by banning him, you know, their stock price fell again. Yeah. Just one indicator of the, you know, influence that the one man has. And also in general, the influence of toxic content on the platform. Galloway's recommendation is that Twitter needs to move from an ad model to a subscription model with subscription fees for accounts of a certain size. So this is one man's recommendation. I'm not necessarily saying this is what I think would work. I don't think it it clarifies
0: whether or not like if you have too many users you need to pay or so much as like I think there's a suite of tools which I've heard of before. Could
1: be either. Could be either. It's not really important what Galloway himself recommends, but basically it's this idea that let's say one possibility is if you reach over 200,000 followers, then you have to pay. So it's like free up to, we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago based off of charging, based off of usage. So free up to 200,000 followers after which you have to pay some kind of monthly amount because you pass that follower amount. A lot of, but then
0: that would, require you to be a creator that is trying to monetize their content. What if I'm just like some person that just wants to share stuff for free and suddenly like, it doesn't I, matter that I don't, if you
1: get that kind of audience, then it doesn't matter what your intention is. It's just based off of the audience.
0: I don't agree with that, but I'll let I'm you finish. Not.
1: Okay. So that's a, that's one option. Another option, which he doesn't necessarily specify is like YouTube, which I was, talking with our friend Francesco about right before recording this where you could pay for additional creator tools such as YouTube and you could even pay just for perks like discord right you could pay just to have the opportunity to tailor your profile a certain way or to be able to create let's say like a work mode versus a personal mode things like that which are not even about monetization of your audience but just about things that could make your experience nicer.
0: Do you recall that service I sent to you probably like a week ago, less than a week ago, that basically tiered it out where you could be a basic tier and you would receive this, but you would get promotion. yeah,
1: and you asked me what I thought about it. And I said, why would anyone go to this platform instead of owning their own thing?
0: But isn't this somewhat similar? I mean, it's one of the perks. One of the perks of this was if you were a paying member, you would have your content serviced higher up which would be an interesting kind of way of looking at it because if you did pay you would receive preferential algorithmic treatment which basically it's kind of like an ad to be yeah, honest no yeah, no totally it's co- totally, it's totally. it is it
1: is it's, i mean it's you can pay for sponsored tweets right now yes you can pay to it's sponsor your similar, tweets yes. it's like that yeah but instead in a more opaque way where you're just paying for additional favoring in the algorithmic Soup, so algorithmic there's, soup. There's that. I did come up with that as an original phrase. So if anyone goes on to say it, please, you know, attribute it to sharice <laughs> Another possibility here, which is interesting, which I don't know if it's realistic, but is an interesting thought experiment, which is that Twitter should acquire or create its own content, such as Spotify and Netflix. And Galloway's argument is that Twitter. Oh hell no. Is already a destination for news and entertainment content, and it could add its own vertical, such as high-quality political journalism. This would have never occurred to me as a thing Twitter might do, or that people would even want
0: Twitter to do. Doesn't that fundamentally change the product, though?
1: Why would you promote anyone else's content if you were publishing your own content?
0: No, but what I mean is, like, as a format.
1: It would have to be in the format of tweets, right?
0: Exactly, and I don't know how conducive that is to longer form content
1: yeah i don't know it was, it was a wild I, I out of left field there when,
0: when you're at you know 20 slash you know tweet of 29 like how many people are still present i do like sort of the idea of of, of trying something new
1: <gasps> no it's interesting which seems to be
0: like the topic and the theme of this week's making yeah. it up
1: yeah the, the thing that galloway says that i most hard agree on is that twitter needs a new ceo which I don't know if this is very boring business news, but the Twitter oh. CEO is Jack, Jack Dorsey.
0: Dorsey. Also the CEO of Square. Yes.
1: He's also the CEO of Square, which is a payments platform slash service. And he's a much more active CEO of Square. And he's not, he's so not active with Twitter that he's not even a malicious player. He just does not appear to care.
0: Why <laughs> ain't around. He ain't around. With the
1: company. He's just very much, he just, it is wild to me that, Twitter by the way has 187 million daily users. The CEO does not care that 187 million people use this product every day. He's just checked out. It's it's wild to me. I would almost prefer a CEO who was making bad choices because at least that CEO was like strategizing. Do you know what I mean like yeah. It's it well, almost seems worse that it should die out of neglect. So and out of misbehavior. this behavior. This
0: whole conversation stems from the fact that there's a fundamental belief that Twitter has a content problem, would you say? Or is you a mean, business problem? Because one has to be more important. The other. No, 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 no. One is more important than the other. Are, is this a trick question? No, it's not. I think the business problem is a bigger problem. The business problem. So you're thinking the content is not really the issue.
1: Well, no, I think it has a content problem. But I think that they could fix the content problem by addressing the business problem.
0: Okay. I I agree with that. Because right now.
1: That's the direction in which I would make the recommendation. Whereas if you just thought about the content problem, if you worked on refining your blocking tools or refining your thing that filters out hate speech, you might make a better experience, but that is not fundamentally changing your business model. Whereas if you went from the business direction, and I think we can all agree that Twitter is not doing great financially, then I think you could improve your content experience as well.
0: Can you let everyone know why you're qualified to speak on Twitter?
1: No, not at all. I don't think I am. I'm barely qualified to talk about anything on this podcast.
0: But it's because you spend 10 hours a day on Twitter. Oh,
1: yeah. The only qualification I have is that out of all of the social media platforms, I use Twitter the most. In fact, while Eugene was doing an ad break, you know, between first subject and second subject, I was on Twitter. That's what I was doing.
0: (laughs) Okay. For me, I don't know. That
1: doesn't make me qualified in any real way, except that this is the platform
0: I use the most. The reason I asked you that question, if it was a content problem or a business problem, was in actuality, we've had discussions about how content changes when there's a subscription play. But the belief here is not that the subscription play of you needing to pay to use Twitter as a 200,000 plus follower user, like that doesn't really change the content per se. It could. It could, but most likely not necessarily. Because I think what I'm trying to get at is that as long as there's some sort of metric at play, then potentially it actually continues on the same path.
1: Okay, so I don't know. Maybe I was being a bit defeatist when I said it should address its business problems first, because the way in which Twitter could fix its content problems is so simple. There are about 20 accounts that if they just permanently banned would immediately like a huge decrease in fake news and false and misinformation on the platform. But they have chosen not to do that. Why do they choose not to do that? You know, it goes back to what I said about engagement, you know, because they're reliant on all of these millions of people logging in so that they can continue to sell ads. Yes. Right. So that's why I think the business model does indirectly affect content because it would make them less reliant on advertising and therefore less relying on engagement.
0: So in actuality, my, my argument is actually pretty much in alignment because it does change.
1: This stat is from Galloway's New York Mag article, and he says that, quoting another study, just 24 external websites receive 79% of links promoting fake news and conspiracy theories on Twitter.
0: Wow, that's a crazy stat.
1: All you would have to do as Twitter is ban 24 websites of being linked to, and you could eliminate... 79% Seventy nine percent of the links promoting fake news and conspiracy theories. I mean, people will still share fake news and conspiracy theories in other ways, but you would be. It really just feels like such a direct fix, at least from my perspective. All we can, all we can say, and I agree with Galloway, is that the reason they don't do this is, like I already said, is engagement.
0: What would happen if you could only read two hundred tweets a day? Hundred tweets a day. You could only tweet your first five tweets a month for free. And then I don't Interesting. know. Like, that's what I'm saying. Is like, I like that. Yeah. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm asking you in terms of, uh, that. Cause
1: I like that. Why not? I mean, <sighs> we've, we said this, like it would be, there are so many ways you can play with subscription that aren't just access. You know, it's not just like pay a flat fee, get access to all of this platform. It can be a scale of things. You could pay nothing and get five tweets and then you could pay a little bit and get 20.
0: It would be meaningful if those things that you looked at were actually of quality. It's time. It could be anything. You get yep. ten free minutes a day. Because I always get my uh, notification from Screen Time, like, oh, you have however many minutes left.
1: Oh, that's so right. healthy of you.
0: I always ignore it, but it's there. <laughs> it reminds me.
1: Thank you for being honest. I did kind of adjacently thought we could potentially talk about TikTok and Clubhouse because Galloway does say things like TikTok and Clubhouse rose up out of the fact that Twitter did not take advantage of the opportunities that it had. Mm -hmm. Oh, and actually also Facebook Live, for example, because Twitter used to have Vine, shut it down right before TikTok became big. They acquired Periscope, which was one of the initial live streaming apps and did nothing with it. yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they still have it kind of in their back pocket, but yeah, nothing really done with it.
0: They did acquire a newsletter company recently.
1: Oh, they did. Um, review, I think. Oh yeah, Substack is another one that kind of rose up out of the fact that Twitter didn't really take advantage of what they could have done. And I mean, it's not necessarily to say, oh, these are blatant missed opportunities, though I think Vine really was. But there is something to be said that Twitter's inaction resulted in all of these other social media platforms filling in need. For me, you asked me about the content problem, and I know that harassment very much does exist on Twitter. And, you know, people will show different stats on whether it's markedly worse on Twitter versus Instagram or Facebook, because let's just, the truth is that harassment exists on any. Social media platform, right? I personally have never had that problem, but I wish Twitter had done something earlier. I don't think they will. And so that's why make positioning Twitter as being able to make better business decisions is a more likely way to get them to change something than to say, you know, ethically you should do something about the harassment.
0: We suggested a few options on how to change their monetization strategy. What are the downfalls of going to subscription? Or if we limit like you only get 50 tweets a day yeah. to look I at. Mean, you only get a tweet three. Twitter's
1: double-edged sword is like one, they've been around so long because they have this huge user base that just hasn't found a perfect replica. Yeah. So people just put up with all of the problems and they stick with it. Right. But then with that comes a huge cost of change. They risk
0: alienation, yeah. et cetera.
1: They risk really pushing their users away with any radical move that they make.
0: I've heard an alternative suggestion where Twitter actually just becomes a public good and just throws monetization out the window and it just becomes a messaging system. That's How it makes money, I don't know. I think it actually might have been like Scott Galloway like a few years ago who suggested this. We're He's just a making-
1: stakeholder.
0: Yes, he is. He
1: disc- discloses that as well. Yeah, so it could have been him. Public utility twitter that's interesting just conceptually having a forum be a public utility
0: yes like a newspaper can be a public utility right but it's just part of the
1: problem with that is that then there is political interest i mean there's already political interest in twitter from both sides but if twitter was funded by
0: taxpayers yes by but tax which taxpayers? Pick. Because it's a global platform.
1: God, I don't know. Yeah. Eugene, Anyways, what I'm trying to get
0: at is that's like, the real. What What I'm trying to get at, I think there is something interesting when things are created as a public good, aka a park, versus it being a private thing.
1: Sure. But then, okay. There's sorry. I'm just being so realistic. There are so many other problems if it's Robot, a public good. Who gets to make the decisions? It will well, change I mean, the even more slowly.
0: The The government would. Obviously, the government in control makes those decisions. But what I'm trying to say is but like... Might,
1: actually, weirdly, the public utility route might solve the business model problem but would probably not solve the content issue because I think that the, the move, the pace at which a public utility moves is too slow.
0: I guess you could police it in a certain way where it's like it would more closely mirror culture and society. Right? Because right now it's like, oh, I can do whatever I want. If I want to ban you, I can ban you because it's a private platform sure. it's a private piece of property sure. anyways I don't think there's a solution to that it's more about like what do you believe in it, it's an interesting because amidst all the social media platforms that have de certain people they've been like oh man like we should definitely rise up and launch our own equivalent Instagram our own equivalent Facebook but the reality is that it's switching costs is, is extremely expensive and hard to overcome
1: you mean on a company side no, or no, an individual. no. Like,
0: you bring in individuals like what's going to like if you go to Mastodon, which is like Twitter's decentralized equivalent. Yeah. If there's only like 30,000 people there, is that worth your time versus 180 million daily users?
1: Yeah. I mean, I ask myself the better question. I feel like that needs to be asked of myself is why do I use Twitter so much? Out of all of the things I could use. Because you're fundamentally consider, more
0: of a reader. You're like a writer. Oh, that right. Was, it's like it's
1: that was a much easier question than yeah. I thought it was gonna be. Because and also
0: it, also I think that ideas, because they are somewhat intangible, operate quite nicely within Twitter. Whereas like Instagram requires a certain materialism to it, right? Yeah. Like a photo needs to be a photo. Yeah. Anyways, it's I true. know you better than you know yourself. No big deal. Wow. Okay. No big deal.
1: That's a good place to cap things off. I'm not coming back from that.
0: Yeah, we got to go. I got stuff to do.
1: That's a good place to wrap things up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories to focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com.
0: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash macon.
1: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com, C H A R I S, or eugene at eugene at macon.com, E U G E N E. We love hearing from you.
0: I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is making it up. The top is I'm laughing because, like, on topic of these alternative revenue streams, I have a piece of ice in my mouth. It sounds funny, it does. All right, (laughs) this is now now
1: an ASMR channel,
0: (laughs) anyways. So, what happens if?